Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes. That it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Two Dudes in a Kitchen with Tyler Florence and Wells Adams, an iHeartRadio podcast. All right, everyone. Hope you're hungry. It's time for another episode of Two Dudes in a Kitchen. I'm Wells Adams alongside Tyler Florence. How are you, man? I'm good, buddy. How are you? I'm really good. I'm excited for today's episode because we've done one like this before and it's done well. And it's one of these episodes where I feel like I learn the most. At the end of the day, it's how all we're really trying to do is, is make me happy. and Today's episode is going to make me very happy. We have so many amazing fans since we started the podcast and everybody chimes in with questions and man, do we love it because we want to give our listeners exactly what they want to know from two dudes in a kitchen. And sometimes, you know, there's the bells and whistles. We have really great guests and then there's the nuts and the bolts. And that's when people just really want to know what's going on in the kitchen and then what can they do to be a better cook tonight? Now, I want to say, um, I think it was last episode, the episode before, you were talking about grilling vegetables on the grill, but needing a good grill basket. So I went online, bought one. And the other night we were making tacos. So I threw a bunch of onions and tomatoes and garlic in that grill basket and then charred those up, threw those in the uh, the blender, made this kind of salsa. Oh, yeah. That we put over the top. Oh, my God. Anyways, thank you. See, right there, that was like this little thing that I didn't know about that you told me about that has completely changed my grilling game. And it is, it's grilling season. Oh, yeah. It's smoking season. So I think anything in that world, dude, if you want to know about it, let's jump into it. You know, we did, we did just finish uh, my 17th cookbook called American Grill. So we are locked and loaded with lots of new techniques and new tricks uh, to up your grill game this summer. Uh, so let the questions fly. But I'm so glad you got that one because I think the grill basket, using your grill outside, not just sort of a nece- necessarily as like a, a caveman with like meat and fire, but to be able to use it as a level of refinement to just cook outside because it, the weather's nice. Yeah. 
you know, and if it's sunset and you got a cold beer or you got a really great glass of wine and you're getting caramelization and char and aroma and vibe and people are just loving it, there's so many ways to cook on a hot grill surface that that doesn't, you know, let all your onions and your tomatoes slip through the cracks of the grates. Yeah. So I think using grill baskets and also using like uh, cast iron steel flat tops as a plancha. Um, to me, I way more enjoy that from a flavor perspective because you still get the aroma, you still get the fire uh, without the flare-ups too, which is another really big important part. So we use a lot of uh, uh, flat tops. Uh, Lodge makes some really amazing grill accessories, and also we love using cast iron pans outside on the grill as well. And then that way you're going to get that really amazing Maillard reaction, uh, which is that caramelization where the proteins and the amino acids melt and make that beautiful, really delicious crust on the outside of a really good steak or a pork chop or shrimp or whatever it is. So that high, hot, hard heat is not necessarily the grates, right? That can actually just be like a shelf that you cook stuff on, which is cool. When you cook a steak on the grill, is... Do you throw it on the grill to get the grill marks and then put it in the cast iron pan in there so you can baste or do you just use cast iron? Well, you, you know, it really depends, right? So I, my big green egg is probably my go-to, right? So my big green egg is, if you guys aren't really familiar with it, it's a, um, it, it, it's a ceramic dome that I think has the most control for heat. And, and listen, I have uh, what has been affectionately called my grill park outside of my kitchen. I have no joke. I have six grills plus a wood burning oven kind of like locked and loaded. So whatever I want to, you know, uh, however I want to approach it tonight for dinner, I've, I've got lots of choices. I've got a really expensive $8,000 Heston gas grill, which I just absolutely love. And my wife really loves that one as well uh, because you can just walk outside, hit the button and the flame just pops on. Uh, to me, I like to kind of get a little more kind of handsy with it. So I like hard fuel. I like charcoal. So I, I like actually kind of using more rudimentary, you know, uh, cause I think you're going to get more flavor out of it as well. Yeah. So, so to answer your question, I, I think it really kind of depends. So I, I, I think it's a little passe from a, from a technique standpoint to start thinking about, I'm going to grill those perfect hash marks, right? So you kind of grill it on one side, you get lines, and then you turn it 45 degrees to get the opposite. So you get this grid pattern. Um, I don't think people really grill like that anymore. It's really more about the the caramelization and the even coating on top of that. Mm -hmm. I, first and foremost, I think about, okay, how am I going to keep my flare-ups to a minimum? So if I've got a really well-marbled steak and I've got a hot grill, the most important thing is to make sure that you're, you're using the radiant temperature, not the direct heat contact. So if I'm using charcoal or if I'm using wood, I want to make sure that I've got it stacked up on one side of the grill. So you've got a real hot side and then you've got a cooler side. So you can kind of play in between going for a little more color going for a little more flavor, going for a little more of a temperature, if you're going from medium rare to medium or rare to medium, uh, and then to move it over to a cooler side so you can roast it, right? So I think that's really important too. But if I've got a real like super fatty steak that I know I, it's just gonna blow up on me, I really, again, kind of going back to that cast iron pan, which is really, really nice. And then that way you, you're not going to get the drips down on top of the grates on, on top of the, uh, on, you're not going to start a fire, which is super important. And, uh, and then you, you can, you can get the caramelization, the flavor versus just going for hash marks. Mm -hmm. Okay. That was my, um, question. <laughs> that was my fan question to you. I, I want to, I want to, um, put a pin in this. Uh, idea because coming up 
Memorial Day is around the corner and my brother and myself, every year we do a crawfish boil and a crab boil and a shrimp boil. And we actually get like the, the crawfish sent over from Louisiana and maybe in an upcoming episode, I'd like to hear, especially a guy from South Carolina. Uh, I'd like to hear your like yeah, dude. boil techniques. Cause I feel like you got a lot of good ones. I do bro. And like, and so I like I, I, you can take the boy out of the South, but you can't yeah. take the South out of the boy. I smash these things. Okay. If you want like regional Southern cooking, dude, I will make you cry. This stuff is so good. I love it. Like last night for the basketball game, I smoked barbecue ribs. I made potato salad. We made a sheet cake. I'm like, if you want like down and dirty Southern, like I smash this stuff. Let okay. Go. You want, you All want right. crawfish boil? Bring it. Okay. Uh, coming up on two dudes in a kitchen, we're going to do it. We're going to do a crawfish boil or just a boil episode in general. Cause yeah. I, I love like a blue crab boil and that's the best to eat. So uh, that's coming up, but let's get into today's episode, which is, Two dudes in a kitchen, fan questions. Uh, I'll ask them. Tyler, you answer them. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, all the things you guys have been wanting to know right here on Two Dudes in the Kitchen. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? 
That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back to Two Dudes in the Kitchen. It's Wells and Tyler hanging out with you. This is a fan question episode. These are our favorite ones because this is where I learn uh, the most, and we get to really showcase how smart our resident chef, Tyler Florence, really is. The first one comes from Marie Tyler, as a chef, do you feel like you need to be strict and bossy in the kitchen? Well, you know, it's very different, right? When I'm cooking at home, uh, no, because like nobody wants an asshole in the kitchen. They just, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like you know, when when if I'm like cooking dinner for the family and people want to hop in, you know, like, it, it, you know, it, it's up to me. I think the most important thing to kind of control your attitude in the kitchen is to make sure you give yourself plenty of time for a dinner party because if you're if you're rushing yourself and you feel like you know you're kind of out of control which does happen um you didn't give yourself enough time to really enjoy the process and then when people roll in the kitchen you know your guests kind of roll in let's say they get there 15 20 minutes early and it always happens and you're kind of like right in the middle of something or you've got you know stuff on your face or, or you know what i mean or your, your kitchen's kind of dirty you need to take a deep breath, right? And then when they walk in the kitchen, you need to embrace them, say hello. And their first question is like, hey, can I help? What can I do to help? Yeah. Have something ready for them to do because they feel like they mm. got involved and they feel like they did something cool. So what I will have like a little, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm really good at this actually. And I'm, I'm thinking about this in real time and I've never really thought about why I do it, but this is why I do it. I'll have a project for them and that's putting together a cheese platter. So I'll have a nice big log of goat cheese. I'll have some fig jam. I'll have some crostini. I'll set up ready to rock and roll. I'll have some salumi that's our, like kind of pre-sliced if I got it from a really spectacular delicatessen or something. And I'll just have them put together a really great cheese tray. And then that way they got involved. And then that way, you know, everybody's kind of jumping in and you kind of did something great. So that's how you kind of keep your cool. It's just be prepared. And then just don't sort of like, you know, just have a good attitude because people just want to vibe and, you know, be part of your world. And, and now professionally, it's a whole different thing. Okay. Now, and now professionally in the kitchen, I think you do have to be bossy, but I, I think you have to be bossy from a position of, of strength and love of what you're doing. And that is satisfying people's desire for a really great hospitality experience. And so, so it's not a democracy, right? I mean, so, so all these recipes that come out of this kitchen are, are mine in collaboration with our executive chefs and our chef de cuisines. So there's a hierarchy. And then, and then what we do is we, we, uh, we funnel as a unit, the way a beehive funnels as an organism. Right. Like we are there to uh, really kind of celebrate the hospitality of the restaurant and give people a spectacular experience. And that's got to be one thought. Right. And that's got to be well sort of, you know, uh, manicured and positioned and executed on a real high level. So sometimes it, it you have to be bossy. But it's not bossy of being like, you know, dogmatic. It's being bossy because you're expressing a desired uh, level of 
excellence that once you get a really good team and that thought process, it just sorts of flow naturally. Um, but there has to be insistence on top of that. You so- said two things there that I, I wanted to ask you about. You said you have a executive chef and a chef de cuisine. What are those and how are they different? Uh, so the executive chef is the executive that runs that department, which is incredibly vital uh, from, you know, obviously from a, a revenue generation standpoint, restaurants serve food and we sell it as a business. So the executive is really kind of responsible for the entire department. And that's millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of sales that that person is ultimately responsible for. And they're responsible for the, um, the kind of human resources, right? So that's managing all of our associates and that's managing 45, 55 people. Uh, and, and that's a very organic thing to make sure that, you know, everybody, uh, is happy and well heard and well looked after and we're well cared for and promoted when need be. And so that's the executive who's responsible for that part of the, of, of the business. Okay. So it's an executive position, C-level executive position. The chef de cuisine is the best cook in the house. The chef de cuisine is the monster like baller who has all the technique. Well, the executive chef is a great cook. I mean, for, for, first and foremost, but the, but the chef de cuisine is the person who's responsible for the food. So, so every bit of like the, 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 the policy that kind of goes into kind of setting up, like, like how do you, you know, the purchasing, the, 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 the manufacturing or the fabrication of like meat cuts, right. Which is really important scale and weight um, and, and a very, very holy ceremony that we have at the restaurant called line checks every night. So so the chef de cuisine goes through every single station, garmage, meat, entremet, uh, pastry, tastes everything. So at like at, at about 20 till five, it spoons up, right? And so that means the chef de cuisine. And you know, that's that, that, um, that scene in uh, Jurassic Park where the, 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 they were hiding in the lab and you could see the glass of water vibrate because the velociraptor was coming. Yeah. That is what spoons up is for us in the restaurant. The chef de cuisine is coming, right? Okay. <laughs> he, he is coming to, to see every, every knife cut, to taste every sauce, to make sure the rotation is happening properly, to make sure that all the cooks are buttoned up and they've got like nice pressed chef's coats and that kind of stuff. So the chef de cuisine is the best cook in the house. And the executive chef is the executive who is responsible for the entire department of the kitchen. Got it. Next question comes from Kyle. This one's actually coming to me, actually. Wells, what is the one thing you would like to work on as a chef? I, well, I'm, I'm a cook. Um, I tell you what, the after the last episode, um, I want to be better at baking. We did an episode with... Um, Patrick Duffy. Duffy's dough. And so yeah, good. Patrick Duffy. And and like I was like, oh man, I want a sourdough starter. I want to be good at that. Um, I love sandwiches. And I've always said that, like, you know, w- what makes the great sandwich places is the bread that they use. And so I want to get really good at that. I think that would be, I think that would be really fun. I think that's my next, my next adventure. And that's that's a lifelong journey, too, by the way. Yeah. And that's a lifelong journey. Just kind of jump into bread and and getting really good at that. Um, I love it. it. You know what I really love about it? Cause I don't eat every loaf that my wife makes and she makes a lot of bread. Mm-hmm. I love the way it smells. Yeah. I love the way that the house just smells like a bakery all the time. It's so much fun. Yeah. 
Uh, Jenny asks, for some reason, every time I make breaded chicken, the breading falls off. How do I get the breading to stick? So when you're uh, putting together breading, um, you have to create like three layers of glue, right? So it's a dry, wet, dry breading process that starts off with flour. That's going to be the first dry. And then the wet is going to be uh, eggs cracked and mixed together. And that's either diluted with a little bit of milk or a little bit of water, mostly water. And then the last one is going to be some sort of uh, coating, bread coating on the outside. And that's either panko or uh, fine bread crumbs, or sometimes when we have stale bread at the house, um, we'll, I'll grind it down in, a, in a, a blender to make a really super fine breadcrumb. And I'll make my own sort of Italian breadcrumb mix. And so, so the the moisture from the chicken itself um, will uh, will will cling onto the flour. Okay, so that's the first layer of glue. On the second layer of glue is going to be the egg wash. Okay, and then the third layer of glue, which is really going to be the breading, and collectively that makes a coating. Okay, so it dry flour, wet eggs, dry breadcrumb. Okay, and then of course those are seasoned, right? So the flour is seasoned, the uh, the the breadcrumb is seasoned, and then the next thing you want to do is you want to let it. You want you want to make sure it's nice and evenly coated, so it's not thick on one side and invisible on the other. So this could be nice and even all the way across, and then you want to let it dry. So I'll put it onto a sheet pan with uh, a wire rack and kind of let it air dry for a little bit. So that's going to ensure it's going to get really really nice and crispy. And now the next thing you want to do is make sure that you preheat your pan and preheat your oil because you're not putting it into a cold pan with cold oil. That's the fastest way to blow your crust off is to not cook it and sear it immediately. Because if you're going to put it into a, a lukewarm or a cool pan with cool oil, it's going to steam on the inside and the steam is going to blow the crust off versus the crust getting nice and crispy and then the chicken cooking all the way through. All right. So, so I, I think there's a couple of steps to make sure you get that right. There's tons and tons of videos online about how to, to do a perfect breading. If you go on YouTube, there's tons. So again, it's dry, wet, dry, three layers of glue, let the uh, uh, crumb crust dry out a little bit. And then a nice uh, wide saute pan. Don't overcrowd your pan too. Cause sometimes what they call it's like, it's called temperature displacement. So if I put four breaded chicken thighs and a pan that's clearly not big enough to hold four chicken thighs. It's going to take the ambient temperature of the pan and then bring it down to the point where it's too not hot enough to sear. And then all the crumb is just going to wash off. Right. For sure. For sure. So nice big pan, good to preheat it, nice uh, hot oil, and then make sure you just kind of sear it. And it's nice and even flip it over golden crust, golden crust on either side. And that's how you make a good crust. And that's how you keep it on. Should you temper your chicken if you're going to be frying it? Uh, well, I, I think chicken for the most part, if you're going to deep fry or, or are you, or what do we make? Are we making like a, well, uh, I think that she's talking about fried chicken. She's fried talking chicken. about, right? Like that's what I think she's talking about. And should, so sure. if you're making fried chicken, should you temper your chicken or does it matter? Well, I, I think you never want to try to put something refrigerator cold into hot oil. Mm -hmm. That's for sure. Now, if we're talking about uh, fried chicken, and I apologize, Jenny, if I, I misread that because I heard, I heard breading. And when I think about breading, I'm always thinking about a cutlet, right? Mm -hmm. So, so, so the, the, the coating on the outside, because like you, you don't really coat fried chicken with bread. So a breading coat is a coating with bread on top of it. So that's usually sort of a panko crumb or something like that. But if we're talking about fried chicken, which, you know, some people say my fried chicken's a big deal. Some people do. I've heard you say that. Uh, some people say it's a big deal. 
that you definitely want to make sure that your your chicken is obviously not room temperature because you don't want to leave it out too long, but it's not refrigerator cold. So um, so that that's going to be chicken that is marinating in uh, in buttermilk um, that has a little bit of hot sauce, a little bit of sugar. A little bit of salt, so it's kind of like nice and complex. You're going to get the tartness from the buttermilk, that little kind of warm, you know, balance out from the heat. Not spicy, but just sort of like just you know, mouth watering. And then a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, and then you know, and that's going to be the first glue, right? Because when you we're talking about breading, it's three layers of glue, but when we're talking about fried chicken, it's only two. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be from the buttermilk mixture into the seasoned flour itself. And then I like to really pack it on. And another way that I ensure like a really super crispy crust with fried chicken is to take some of the buttermilk. And I e- e- either do this with my fingers or do it with a spoon, but take a, a big spoonful of the, the seasoned buttermilk mixture and then sort of zigzag it across your flour mixture and then kind of work that in. So you're kind of creating these little crummy pieces that stick onto the fried chicken. They get really crispy when they fry. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, Pro level. That's uh, a pro level tip, Ooh. right? And then, and then, to, and then take the the chicken pieces out of the buttermilk, and then uh, uh, throw it into the flour, and make sure you just pack it on really, really tight because that's definitely part of the experience. Shake off any excess, and again, put it onto a sheet pan with a wire rack. Let it air dry for a little bit, and then with frying chicken, you want to make sure that your 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 deep frying oil is about twenty five degrees hotter than you're going to need to cook it. So we want to cook it around 350, but with temperature displacement, because you know better, because if you drop cool chicken into hot oil, it's going to bring the temperature down to the point where it could potentially blow off the crust. So 375 to start. And when you put your fried chicken into the oil, it's going to level out at about 350. And then you're frying at a really, really good temperature. So start a little higher than you think you're going to need. And then when you got to get to that sweet spot, it takes about you know eight to 12 minutes when it floats, it's done, right? Take it out uh, again uh, and let it, you know, uh, season it when it's really nice and hot and enjoy your fried chicken, Jenny. Damn. Okay. That's not a good. Josh asks, I love everything but the bagel seasoning at Trader Joe's. My wife does too. Do you have a recipe that I can make using it? Um, well, th- is he asking for a recipe to make that specifically or a recipe to use his pre-bought seasoning mix? What do you think it says? I, th- I think what he's saying, you know how you, you have like the everything bagel seasoning and you can just put it on whatever? Yeah. Um, I think he's asking, I love that seasoning. What would this go well with if I was cooking something? I think it tastes really great with like cream cheese fatty stuff, right? So if I wanted to make like um, like a spinach artichoke dip, and I think if you dusted that with everything bagel spice, I think that's really great. I like adding almost like a fukuraki soka, like sort of mixture with like a Japanese sort of spice mix with nori and a little bit of chili flake on top of that. I think that could be really interesting. I actually like that a lot. I think it's delicious. And so I, I, I think it kind of feels like something that would be, you know, I don't know. We could almost kind of throw it on, on anything, to be honest with you. I'm thinking about this out loud right now. If you wanted to like everything bagel spice, a chicken breast, I, I would just be really careful because the dehydrated garlic and onion could have a tendency to burn pretty quickly. So I, I definitely wouldn't cook with it. I would finish with it, but I think it's a really, really nice. Uh, I like everything bagel spice on my scrambled eggs, to be honest with you. I think that's kind of nice. Yeah. That and on avocado toast. Very good. Avocado toast is fabulous on avocado toast. That's a great one. On top of burrata cheese. Ooh. That's really nice too. Yeah. 
Jeff asks, do you clean as you go or throw everything in the sink and leave, leave it out until the meal is over to start doing the dishes? I try to clean as I go, but what happens is it starts to stack up a little bit, right? So uh, if, if um, in, in maintaining, that's another way to really kind of keep your head clean, right? So you don't kind of lose control of the kitchen, which I, I think is a valuable part of having a really great dinner party and cooking at home is because when people walk in the kitchen, they don't want to see you out of control. They don't want to see you kind of losing your shit a little bit, right? And so I, I think um, making sure that you have your mise en place tight, and you know about mise en place, my friend, don't you? I do. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, keep your mise en place tight. And that means everything in its place. That means you've got, you're not necessarily pulling stuff out of the grocery bag and then chopping it as you need it. You pre-chop it and get the recipe together. And then you just sort of execute everything in, in little bowls. Okay. That's really important. Now, clean as you go. I, I think it's really important that you keep your counter clean. All right. So you keep your cutting board clean. You keep what's kind of your what's in your immediate surface around you um, as organized as possible. So you're not getting cluttered. And then when it comes to cleaning, because like you, most often, and, I, and I'm sure this is like this in, in your household, but in our household, like I do, I cook and then my wife cleans up, right? So I don't want to bomb her <laughs> with my colossal mess, which I do from time to time, but, but if I'm, but when I cook at home, I'm cooking for like 15, 20 people. I'm not cooking for four. Right. So, um, when like last night we had 15 people over the house. Right. And, and I made a little bit of a mess, but I was trying to be really, really conscious about trying to clean as I go and not make a, a sink full of, you know, dirty stuff for somebody else to clean up. So, um, it's really important to, to make sure you at least rinse everything out you could stack it up. But don't leave it in there like if it's like a you know a bowl of aioli that you're putting together or a bowl of something creamy. Just wash it out and at least kind of do that first step. Because, Love that. And yeah. by the way, I am the cook and the cleaning lady at my house. Well, you've cool. got a you've got a very nice gig going. I got to convince Sarah of this somehow. Well, you know it's it's listen. I I think everybody has. If that's your agreement in the house, <laughs> so be it. Yeah. That's the way it rolls. Happy wife, happy life, right? There you go. Exactly. Uh, Anna Lee asks, uh, can dough be made ahead of time, pressed into the pan, and frozen to be baked at a later date? Yes. And I, I read that question, and I was thinking, okay, obviously, there's different kinds of pie. There's different dough, right? There's pie dough. There's bread dough. There's focaccia dough. There's, like, different types of bread dough. So... Um, when you, when you freeze bread, you want to do it before the final proofing because that you want to, you, you can't like the, the final proofing when the cell structure starts to really develop in the bread. And we covered this last week with, with Duffy's dough. So that so when you, when you cut open a fresh loaf of, of bread, right, let's say it's a baguette or if it's sourdough or whatever it is, the cell structure happens when the yeast develops carbon dioxide and starts to balloon and blow out the soft uh, glutinous texture of the soft bread itself, right? So um, so you can't necessarily disrupt that, but you can make the dough, right? And then portion out into, if you're going to make dinner rolls or make a baguette, or if you're going to make like a, a, a beautiful tray of uh, focaccia, um, you can totally freeze that. But when you thaw it, 
you need to save room for that last proofing. And that needs to done needs to be done not only at room temperature, but at a warmer temperature. So leave your dough out, your frozen dough out for maybe like two or three hours at room temperature to let it start to thaw. And then you want to kind of tuck into a corner or maybe in the sunshine. I usually proof bread in the sun. And, and just kind of let it start to just start to blow up a little bit. And that way, when you kind of, it's going to be light and airy, and that's a, a really great loaf of bread. And that last part needs to happen in real time. You can't bake frozen bread. It's good to know. I did not know that. Uh, Lauren asks, does searing a steak seal in its juices? Well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, so the, the the it sounds like a really great like selling point for like a George Foreman grill, right? Yeah. It's like you want to seal in those juices, right? And 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 I I, I think in, in a lot of ways it, it it doesn't really do that at all, right? Because you're still going to get uh, moisture evaporation. It doesn't seal in the juices. You can still see steam escape from from a, a steak as you start to sear it. What it does do is develop flavor. That's for sure, right? So if you've got um uh. uh you you can totally sear and dry out steak all at the same time, which proves it doesn't seal in the juices. So if you overcook a steak and hammer it, you're definitely going to dry it out. So you're not sealing in anything. So overcooking a steak is is how you're going to dry something out. And sealing the juices means you're just going to cook it properly to whatever whatever temp you want, right? So if you like it medium rare. Now, when I'm cooking for a dinner party, I always think medium is the safe place to go. Because like I'm sure I've said this on the podcast a couple of times that if you if if, if you're managing a crowd's expectation, you've got six, seven, ten people come over for dinner. If you if you like it medium rare, you don't mind it medium. But if you like it medium, you probably don't like it medium rare. So I think going medium is always the safe way to go. So what you want to do uh, to answer the question here is is to make sure you've got a really really great sear on the outside of the steak, and that's an even, you know, temperature. Uh, or in other words, an even sear, hot hard sear on the outside, so it's nice and brown and golden, and that's going to be flavor. That's going to be taste, right? Well seasoned, nice salt, nice pepper on the outside. Uh, maybe an herb. I, I, sometimes I'll take like uh, fresh rosemary from the garden, or, or you know, some a fresh bouquet of herbs, and I'll keep like a warm pot of olive oil with the herbs, and I'll have like a nice sort of like herb brush on top of the stuff to really kind of get those herby notes on top of it, and then a really really nice rest to because uh, uh, because a steak on the inside is kind of like a volcano. So the natural moisture, which is the water, because we're all made up of mostly water, um, you're going to get moisture from two things, the moisture content, water content, and the steak, and then the fat as the fat starts to melt. That's going to be the unctuousness of what really kind of tastes delicious, right? So so if you let it, if you if you cut it super hot, let's say you've got a good sear, you know, you take it off the grill, you think it's dinner time, and then you're, you're going to pull a rookie move and you're going to cut it steaming hot, right? All of those natural, that, that moisture, because it, it's going to be, you know, let's say the internal temperature is going to be 125 degrees, you know, that's pretty hot, right? Uh, and so, so those moisture, that moisture is going to want, like a volcano, it's going to want to escape someplace, right? But if you let it cool back down again, 90 degrees, 85 degrees, it's still really, really warm. It's a perfect temperature to serve steak at. Let it cool down for a little bit. And that's a great way to retain a lot of fat and a lot of moisture so it doesn't end up on your cutting board. All right, which is really, really important. So to answer, I know that was kind of a loopy explanation, but they had a couple of, because it's, it's sort of true and sort of not true all at the same time. Uh, but the most important thing is to get a really good hot, hard sear, 
cook it to the proper temperature. Medium is a safe place to go for a dinner party and then let it rest. So you've got, um, you're retaining as much as those juices as possible, but I always, always like searing in the juices. I mean, I just, I, I don't know who came up with that phrase, but I wish I did. Yeah. Be a rich man. Yeah. You wouldn't be needing to do this podcast. I, I always often wonder, does basting, you know, a chicken or steak, you know, in butter, does that make it juicier or is that just a way to evenly cook something slower? So this is a trip, right? So if you take a look, if you get a hot, hard sear, a really great crust on the outside of something, it could be anything, pork chop, shrimp, a steak, uh, that's definitely a super sexy slow motion on Instagram. When you see a chef based with garlic and herbs and the butter's all foamy, and he's kind of like with a big spoon, he's sort of like throwing it on top of the steak and it kind of starts to drip. Super sexy. Now, what happens? So if you if you take a look at, uh, at the top of a steak under a microscope, right, it starts to dehydrate. Again, it gets kind of crispy. It's a nice texture contrast, right? But it starts to dehydrate almost like a dry sponge, all right? So the when you're throwing um, fat on top of that, it's going to absorb one last layer of fat, one last lick of flavor, fresh fat, because sometimes fat in a pan can get a little hammered, right? The, especially when you, you know, uh, uh, cook at a super hot temperature. I always uh, take the steak out, dump out the fat that I cooked the steak in, put it into a relatively dry pan. Now it's got all the fawn and stuff. I didn't clean it out, but I, I, I got rid of the, the, uh, the extinguish, the, the burnt the fat. burnt fat. Yeah, exactly. Then you put the steak back in, then you mount it with fresh butter, herbs, and garlic. And it's going to, it's going to start to melt really, really quickly. And then it's going to start to bubble and get foamy. Then when you splash that on top of the steak, the crispy texture on the outside of the steak is absorbing that fresh layer of garlic and herb infused fat inside the crevices of the crispy texture. So when you bite into that, you're biting into crispy steak that's infused with garlic butter. And that sounds bomb to me. Yeah. Those sound like the juices I can get on board with. I can get down with that. Yeah. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old... Oh, yeah. 
And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Benji asks, how do you cook veal so it's not tough? Like like veal is not that tough, right? Yeah, I mean, veal is really tender anyway. Um, But I I think I know what he's talking about. So uh, with veal with most of these questions there's variance in a lot of these things like it kind of depends right so a veal shank that you make an osabuco out of that's obviously tough um you know high contrasting muscle with you know with um you know sinew and that kind of stuff that needs to break down into a slow braise so that is going to be tough now if we're talking about veal scallopini right which is uh top round which is sort of like the breast right here. That's kind of a big, huge roast that if you take a look at it, it has like three lobes to it. And they're all kind of inter interconnected with like a little bit of sinew in between all three of those things. So you can trim that out and make three really beautiful roasts that sear up really well, roast beautifully, slice beautifully. Um, now, if, if, um, if, if you want to slice it to make veal scallopini, that's, that is butter soft and butter tender, then I think it's really great to get a nice slice and you want to slice it not straight down, but sort of on the bias. So you're cutting the, 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 the muscle fiber as thin as possible. And then, uh, you know, put it onto, uh, you know, a plastic cutting board that we call the protein board at the house. So if I want to pound out chicken breast or pound out veal, I got a very specific board to do that. And then you cover it with plastic wrap and you take a mallet. Um, now, do you have a pounding mallet at your house? Okay. I do too. Not everybody has one. And if you don't have one, it's okay. You can use the back of a frying pan or you can use a rolling wine pin. bottle. A rolling pin is really great for that. You can use a wine bottle. Just don't get too heavy handed with it. And you, you can really sort of flatten it out. And when you're flattening it out, you're also tenderizing and shortening the muscle fibers. Now, when, when it comes to cutting something and making it specifically tender, the thinner that you can cut the muscle fiber, the more tender it's going to be. So if you take something and shave it paper thin, uh, like prosciutto, like it's it melts in your mouth. If you cut a, a, a steak of prosciutto 
it's going to have a little chew to it. Um, and even the same thing with a, a beef tenderloin. Like if I cut a beef tenderloin going east to west and cut it, you know, it, it, it's it's as tough as shoelaces. But if I cut it north to south, and obviously that's what a, a beef tenderloin looks like steak wise, it's going to be really really delicious. So if you tr- if you shorten the muscle fibers, it's it's uh, as is going to be more tender. But if you pound it out really thin. Um, you're going to, you're going to break those muscle fibers up even more. Uh, and I, I think it's a really great way to get like a really beautiful veal scallopini, which I, I just love when, you know, great Italian cooking. Um, if you like that kind of thing, makes a great veal Parmesan and that's the same thing with chicken breast too. So, so pound it thin, it's going to make it more tender. Last question about the, um, the mallet mine is flat on one side and then like kind of has teeth on the other. Am I supposed to be using one side or the other, or like is one for one thing and the others for another? Uh, I don't really like using the teeth because I, okay. I think it uh, destroys a cut. Like you're going to end up with holes in it, uh, which I, I don't think are particularly pretty, especially if you start to bread it. It just kind of looks like um, like paper dolls that didn't go very well. Yeah. Um, but if you use the flat side and it, it, it's, a, and it's a, um, a pound and push, right? So you want to pound and push and pound and push and pound oh, and push. So okay. Yeah. So you're not pounding straight down. You're pounding and pushing as you're pushing. Right. So you want to try to flatten it out and take a look at it too. So you may have something that's, it's kind of, uh, uneven, um, because you want to make sure it cooks, uh, evenly and perfect. So you want to make sure that you pound it, take a look at it, spin it around if you need to pound it on the other side. Uh, and then also just make sure that you're not going crazy with how thin you could possibly get it. Because if it gets too thin, it'll just break if you're trying to bread it. Yeah. Like if you're making a chicken pie art, you know, all right. Good. For example, I did not know that. Good to know. Um, oh, there you go. Farah asks, uh, which part of the green onion scallion is supposed to be used? The green, uh, the white, or both? You know, I was thinking about this too, because it, it really kind of goes into two different categories, sort of like general purpose cooking. And I think you use all of it. And then when it comes to like Asian or Chinese cooking specifically, they use the white of the mm-hmm. onion for flavor and the green of the onion for garnish. Yeah. So the white of the onion has a, it has a, a, like the part that's still kind of buried underground. That's the reason the chlorophyll hasn't touched it yet. So that's the reason it's white, not green, um, has a sweeter flavor. Uh, the green part that kind of kisses the sun. So the chlorophyll takes over this reason it's nice and green and tall has a stronger flavor to it. Um, so I like that as a punch cut really, really thin into tiny circles, or, you know, if you want to get fancy with it, you can turn on a bias and cut them into thin ribbons, soak them in ice water. And you get these little pigtail curls, which look really great on, on, on top of dishes. I think those are really nice as well. Um, but, um, you, you, the sweeter, the flavor is going to be the white part and the, and the more onion note is going to come from the green part. Also, mouthfeel, I think, is important. The whiter part is crunchy, and the greener part is uh, not as crunchy. Yeah, yeah, for, for sure. W- without a question, there, there's a little bit of like toothiness texture to all of it. Um, but when I think about it, it's really the sugar content. So the, the mm-hmm. part, the root is always going to hold on to the carbohydrates. So that's the energy source. So it's going to have like more of a sweeter flavor profile. And uh, and then if you look at most like Chinese recipes, uh, they'll, they'll cook with the white and garnish with the green. Charlie asks, if a recipe calls for wine, is the best to choose a dry wine? Well, you know, it really kind of depends too. Like if, if you, like if, if I'm looking for a sweet finish, like if I'm reducing port wine or if I'm reducing, you know, an Armagnac or if I'm reducing something that has a high, what they call RS or residual sugar, 
Like I'm looking for that raisiny note. I'm looking for that, you know, pancake syrup kind of like vibe, which I think is really great. So I'm looking for something, you know, and a lot of like sweet and heat flavor combinations, you know, black pepper and sort of a fortified wine tastes really great together. Those That's a great flavor combination. But if a, if a recipe calls for a splash of red wine specifically, let's say you're making like an old school Sunday gravy, right? And, and it calls for a splash of red wine. You're looking for something that on the drier side has a, a, a lower RS, residual sugar. And you could just take a swig of it and tell if it's like drier or sweeter. Like, And the drier wine will have a higher tannin level. So you're, it'll feel like you kind of want to pucker up a little bit. And a sweeter wine will just feel, you know, like, kind of give you pancake syrup vibes, right? Not probably not as sweet, but sweet. And and so with a drier wine, you're going to end up with um, a balance of acidity, right? Because it's kind of what you're going for. And you can get acid from a bunch of different places, but the red wine thing has a little complexity to it with a balance of sugar. Because red wine is a combination of fortified fermented, you know, uh, alcohol, with a berry complex, right? So with a flavor forward from the berries itself. So you're going to get like, if you added, you know, a splash of red wine to, you know, garlic and onions, as you start to cook down before you add the tomatoes, you're going to get a brighter complexity from the acid and the alcohol in the wine. And you're going to get a little sugar note, uh, from the, from the, the berry, uh, grape flavor itself. So it, it's really, again, kind of depends on what you're going for specifically. I usually I swear to God, I don't care. Like if I, if I have wine that I'm cooking with, it's wine that we didn't drink. So if we have like a leftover bottle of wine, I don't throw it out. I'll just cork it, throw it by the uh, stove. And the next time I need a splash of red wine, that's kind of what I use. And I don't even notice it. it obviously port wine's very, very, very different, but if it's just like a, you know, a brando bottle of Pinot or Cab or whatever it is, uh, I don't care. And it doesn't matter if, if you cork it and it's, you know, you, put it in the fridge or whatever for a week or so, you can still cook with it and it's not going to be terrible. Totally. Yeah. It, yeah. It's not going to, well, I mean, if, if you put it in the cabinet and kind of let it leave it there for three months, it's going to convert itself to, to vinegar. It's going to convert yeah. itself to vinegar. Um, and that actually has, you know, uh, and my wife is so f funny cause she doesn't throw anything out. Like she, mm -hmm. she loves to create little science projects. Like we have, um, she's made homemade apple cider vinegar from apples from our tree. Uh, and we have a ton of that laying around. Um, we have a lemon vinegar that she makes from the lemons from our tree, which is also really nice. So, um, you know, everything has a culinary value, even things that, that are kind of moving down the food chain. So yeah. I wouldn't throw it out necessarily. Um, but, um, but definitely, you know, uh, uh keep it in the fridge is a good, good way to preserve it. And then also just using it. I think it's a great way to, to, you know, do something with it too. Yeah. Yeah. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. 
you just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed, And to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So... How'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Riley asks, my wife prefers well-done steaks. How do I cook a quality steak to the well-done stage without drying the meat out? All right, Riley, listen up. This is what you're going to do. You're going to get two steaks, okay? You're going to get one for you, and then you're going to get one for your wife. Now, you're going to start your wife's steak a little earlier than yours because you want them to finish at the same time because you don't want to hand her a cold steak. Now, you're going to start to sear it on the hot side of the grill, and then you're going to move it down to the cooler side of the grill because we've already discussed this and covered this, right? Hot side for the Maillard reaction, and then the color and the flavor, and the cooler side to roast it all the way through. Halfway through cooking her steak to perfection, even if it's well done, you're going to throw yours on because I, I, you sound like a medium rare guy to me and I, I appreciate that. So uh, you can never shame anybody for what, what steak temperature they like. If they like it, so be it. In our restaurant, we get all kinds of people who like all kinds of different like steak temperatures. And if you like it, we like it because we can still crush it. Now, a way to make it really, really juicy is, is to make sure that you've got a well-marbled steak. So marbling and and fat content is going to give you that unctuous flavor profile. My favorite steak in the world is ribeye. And so you can make a really, really nice, well, juicy ribeye steak kind of on the medium well plus well done side that still has lots of marbling to it and lots of really great flavor profiles, right? So get yourself an instant thermometer. I don't know if I have one handy, Um, but an instant thermometer, you can get them on Amazon. They cost about 20 bucks. Uh, That is going to be your... Um, your tool to perfect your partner's 
steak preference. And if you're looking for a well done, you're going for about 140, 145 degree internal temperature. That's going to give you a really, really great, well done, uh, 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 you know, very, very little pink all the way through. But still, you're not to the point where you're in dehydration land, right? So when you get to 155, 160, then it starts to turn into a hockey puck. Then it gets really, really super dry. But somewhere between like 145, 147, it's totally cooked all the way through, and you still have some moisture content that you'd be proud of. And it's and it's delicious. I think it's great. All right. Lisa says, what are some delicious, creative recipes to make with chicken thighs? Ooh, I really like chicken thighs. Chicken thighs are so great, again, because of the fat content. And then I think like dark meat has more flavor than white meat. And a lot of people really love boneless, skinless chicken breast. And I can make a really good one too. They're super easy to dry out. Um, and so to, to go back to the thigh, the, the combination between the dark meat that I, think, that I think has more flavor and then the fat content makes it juicy. So a lot of people like it. So uh, skinless chicken thighs, boneless skinless chicken thighs, I think are the new chicken breasts if you really, really want something great. Now you can cut it really thin and then you can kind of like marinate it almost like Chinese style. And I'm thinking this through in real time, but if you had like a, 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 a mixture of, of um, soy sauce, ginger, um, um, white onion, um, a little bit of cornstarch, uh, a little bit of mirin. You could kind of make a slurry out of that. You can make a really beautiful, like kind of like fried chicken thing that could be great for a stir fry. That sounds really great too. Um, I love sort of a mock paella using chicken thighs too. So you could, uh, take chicken, uh, squeeze a little bit of lemon juice on top of it, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, quick little marinade, had it dry, kind of get a wide uh, um, sort of frying pan, saute pan, 12 inches or so. Sear um, each, uh, sear like what we call our presentation side. So pick the pretty side of the chicken thighs. Get a really good, beautiful sear on top of that. Take them out. And then you want to add a little bit of um, uh, minced onion, uh, saute that down. So you kind of make it like a sofrito. This is a mock paella, by the way. Add some rice to that. Give it a little stir. It's a two to one ratio. Uh, from uh, uh, rice to liquid. So if you've got one cup of rice, you got two cups of liquid on top of that. And then you can add some really kind of fun flavor profiles. You can add coconut milk to that, which would be really yummy. Uh, you can add like chicken bouillon cubes to that, would make it very chickeny. You can add lots of, you can add a little tomato product to that. So it kind of has like a dirty rice vibe. Um, you can kind of make this chicken and rice base thing that you could spin a lot of different directions. And it's a great one pan meal that goes from the stovetop into the oven straight to the table that has a little something for everybody. So, so I, I would say the chicken, the rice would probably be your, your, your widest aperture to be able to create lots of different fun uh, variations out of that and just kind of riff on it, whatever you got in the house. You can add sausage to that. You can add, like I said, lots of fun vegetables to that. You can add seafood to that. You, got, you, know, you can kind of make more of a paella thing, but that's what I would do. Last question. Marisol asks, what are some good tips for cooking in a tiny kitchen? Um, your first apartment, how big was it? 700 square feet. Yep. For the whole thing, right? Yeah. The whole, yeah, not the kitchen. No, the whole thing. The whole thing. Mine yeah. too. It was really, really tiny and that's okay. So I, I think you got to have fewer, better things. You can't be piled up with a hundred thousand different ways to cook something because you just, you don't have the space for it. So you have to be really, really picky about what you have in the kitchen 
for the first part, right? So you want to make sure you've got like a good, I would say good 10 piece cookware set. I think it's really important. And, you know, a, a cookware set that you can expand to. So definitely invest in cookware because cheap cookware is going to wear out mm-hmm. and you're going to get disappointed with it really, really quickly. But if you have a, uh, you know, a great set of cookware, I like Heston. Heston, it's a, you know, that's manufactured in Italy. You can pick it up on Williams-Sonoma. They're a little expensive, but I think if you're going to invest in something, you know, get some good cookware and they have tons and tons of pieces. You can always kind of roll out with like the bowls and the sheet pans. And, you know, next time it's your birthday or Christmas, people can add onto that list for you. I think that's important. The next thing I think is really important is to have a good uh, 24-inch cutting board, a big, thick cutting board that will take up a sizable portion of your available counter space in a tiny kitchen because you want it to be purposeful. You want this to be where this is the dance floor for all of your food. This is where it's all going to go down. And it needs to be wide enough that you can chop some stuff and... Uh, still feel like you're in control of the kitchen. So you're not chopping on a chiclet, like a little tiny little, you know, bread sandwich cutting board. You've got some room to move. I also think um, having a nice set of knives in a uh, chopping block that uh, sits either on top of your fridge, if you're at a counter space already, or if you have another little nook uh, where you can keep your knives nice and clean and keep them, you know, don't throw them in a drawer because they're just going to get dull, you know, keep them um, uh, or get a magnetic, uh, strip that gets mounted to the wall. That's another place, great place to counter saving opportunity to keep your knives nice and kind of clean and separated from everything else. And then I, I, I think you, you might want to go up, right? That there's an opportunity to kind of mount a, uh, a pot rack on the ceiling of your small space. I think that's a really good opportunity to use some of your space wisely, which is kind of cool. And, uh, and then if you had to get like a secondary, like shelving unit to be able to kind of keep, like, if you had to put uh, secondary like pantry of your spices and that kind of stuff in a cool little you know decorative wire rack thing that you kind of picked up someplace i think it's a really good opportunity just to manage your kitchen really well nice all yeah. right that is all the questions we have for the question episode of two dudes in a kitchen but if you guys want to ask your questions uh, just head on over to our instagram page two dudes in a kitchen give us a follow and send us a dm with any of your questions we'll do these you know every month or so and these are always my favorite episodes so Tyler, thank you so much for dropping some wisdom on us and teaching us how to not be complete idiots in the kitchen. My pleasure. I I think it's really important to to be comfortable in your own kitchen space and follow us. We have so many great guests. We we cover so many wonderful topics every week and you're always going to learn something and you're going to be better prepared uh, the next time you want to throw down in the kitchen, even if it's making a good grilled cheese sandwich. We've we've always got great tips for you and uh, I love these episodes too. Yep. Come hungry. We'll see you next week. See you guys. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Instagram at two dudes in a kitchen. Make sure to write us a review and leave us five stars. (laughs) We'll take that and we'll see you guys next time. See you next time. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.